0: Okay, well, let's turn over there to Revelation chapter fourteen, and the goal is to get down to verse thirteen. And um, man, I have just s- cut so much out of my notes, and I still don't know that we're going to make it to verse thirteen. But I just took out—you would be proud of me. You would have been proud of how much stuff I cut out. I really—I don't know if you'd be proud how long it goes. But I mean, if you knew how long it could have gone, you're 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 so thankful right now. So uh, Revelation chapter fourteen. And we'll pick up there at verse 1 in just a moment. But uh, chapter 13 revealed to us the terrible reign that the Antichrist and the false prophet, his PR guy, are going to have upon uh, the world. They're going to deceive. There's going to be a deception unlike anything this world has ever seen. Um, You know, and there's been some pretty amazing deceptions. Um, but his tyrannical rule um, is going to uh, come to an end and the Lord is going to deal with him and the Lord is going to deal with all that worship him as God and um, that is what they will be doing there in the last days. It'll be the last days religion, the worship of the Antichrist. This passage that we're going to move into answers the questions of, well, we know what happened to the Antichrist. We know what happened to his followers, but what about those What about the 144,000 that were sealed? What about the Jews? Um, And what is the final end of the Antichrist? And so these are some of the things that we'll we'll pick up and begin to look into. But let's first of all read um, a few of these verses. We'll pick up at 14. We'll read down to verse 5, chapter 14, verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. They sing, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders, and no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they... Are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being first fruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. And we'll stop right there for now. So, God is faithful to his promises. So I didn't have time to get the slides together. but um, So verse 1, um, my note, main note here is just that God is faithful to his promises. Um, the Antichrist is doing his worst. He's destroying, he's persecuting, he's killing. But there was a promise given to these 144,000 that no harm would come to them. And, and here they stand. And they're standing on Mount Zion. Is anybody going to uh, Israel with us next week? Anybody? you're going to be standing on Mount Zion. And um, one day all of you will be standing there. So don't worry. Um, You'll have a free ticket if you don't go ahead of time. So um, it'll be much more glorious. But um, we're going to be standing on Mount Zion. We're going to be there in the, the city of Jerusalem. And the Lamb, Jesus, is on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. With these 144,000 that have that seal, or here we get this extra information the father's name is written on their foreheads. There are questions about the timing and the location of this event. Um, is this something that's happening at the millennial, the, at the, that point in the millennium? They've made it all the way through. It, it seems likely to me that that could be the case. Uh, we've just, you know, read about the Antichrist and, and how the Lord has dealt with him and so forth. So it, it wouldn't be surprising that we're now kind of looking forward um, and seeing these that are with uh, the Lamb. They've come through that period of time. Um, this Mount Zion um, literal um, there's some indication because of what we read of the the voice in heaven that maybe this is they you know referring to the spiritual Zion I don't know how to reconcile all that together but my my, my this is my take as I do believe this is standing on literal Zion and there is a song that is being sung and um, I don't know how to put all that together but this is this is my best guess uh, uh, consideration of this. There are others that say they're in heaven with the Lord. They're singing the song in the spiritual Zion. Okay, it could be. That that may be the case. And good godly men um, take either position. I I don't think it really matters. The point of the passage right here is God's been faithful, and they are with him. We don't read that there's 143,999. We read there's 144,000. And that is the faithfulness of the Lord. In Revelation 7 and Revelation 9, we read about a promise that they would be sealed and that no harm could come upon them. And um, they are 12,000 Jews from the 12 tribes of Israel. And the Lamb of God, the Savior, is standing with them. And so the Lord has seen them through. Some have said, well, that, you know, they've, That they're what I don't believe. The timing is is that we're somewhere in the tribulation, and um, that uh, these one hundred forty four thousand are now in the presence of the Lord, because that means some harm would have had to have come to them. Um, So, so it's either you know um, the Lord makes a special appearance with them uh, during the tribulation, or it's afterwards, um, or something like that. But it's not that harm has come to them. and just as they have the promise um, that they will stand with the Lord on Mount Zion, so, so do we. We have a promise that we're going to stand in the presence of the Lord and that he will finish the work that he has begun in us. Uh, Jesus said in John seventeen four as he prayed, I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. Um, Jesus always finishes the work that's been given to him. He finishes the work as it pertains to those 144,000. But he's going to finish the work that pertains to you. And he's in the process of doing that right now. He's gone to prepare a place for us. He has sent his Holy Spirit to us. He is interceding for us right now. And so the Lord is doing that work. We've been promised that our good shepherd, right, they have the Lamb of God. We have a Lamb of God, but just a different look. We have been promised by our good shepherd that he's not going to lose any of us. John 10, 28, 29, I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hands. Nobody's going to take you away from the Lord. Satan's not going to come and overpower him and wrench you out. The Lord is able to keep what is his. Uh, John, uh, Paul put it this way in Philippians 1:6, being confident of this very thing that he will be, has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So, you know, if you're feeling a little beat up in your walk, okay, well, make sure you're staying close to the Lord, come near to the shepherd, spend some time in prayer. Make sure the Word of God is, is reviving you and strengthening you. Be around the body of Christ, receiving that strength and encouragement that we can give to each other. Walk in obedience to the commandments of the Lord and have a confidence. that. And this is where this strength comes. This is where that work is happening in our life. What you don't want to do is say, okay, great, and then move away from all the places in which the work of, the, of God is going to happen in your life. You know, you go out there and you're living, you know, a life of sin surrounded by godly people, no regard for the word or prayer. God's work there is going to be different. I mean, he's going to chastise you there. But when we're putting ourselves in the place of following the Lord, now we can work in my life. And um, continue to knit my heart to his. So um, they stand with the Lord and you will stand with the Lord. He's going to be faithful. In verses 2 and 3, we read of their song of redemption that only they can sing. They have a special song and they can only sing it because God has done a unique work in them during this period of time that you know, the the church won't be able to sing because she won't be there at this time. That the, you know, the Old Testament saints, they won't be able to sing. That other tribulation saints won't be able to sing because they weren't the 144,000. This is a song that's very unique. And this is not, I mean, we see this all throughout Scripture. I mean, you know, there are certain groups of people that can sing songs because of the experiences that they've had with God. You know, uh, Moses wrote a song about passing through, you know, the sea. I mean, we can sing about it and rejoice in what God did in them, but we can't sing it as those who have passed through. This is always the case. Now, some will say, well, well, when we talk about how the church is going to have a a, a unique and does have a unique relationship that's distinct from the tribulation saints, um, they they, they have an issue with that. But here we see that there's even a line of distinction that's made between these that are singing the song and only they can sing it and all the rest. So distinction does not mean that you are somehow on a lesser level. It means you have had a different experience with the Lord. Um, I would present to you that we get to sing a song in Revelation 5.9, and they sing a, a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And um, so Revelation 5, I believe this is the church in the presence of the Lord singing this song. So even though the uh, 144,000 have this special song of redemption, we too have this special relationship with the Lord. And we get to um, worship Him as the bride of Christ, the church of Jesus Christ. Um, Just looking there in in, uh, verse 4, it says, at the beginning, it says, They... Oh, excuse me. These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. So this 144,000, they have a meeting with the Lord. He finishes the work. He is faithful to their promises. The 144,000 have a song of redemption. And just notice, I mean, it's, you know, it's like a loud thunder. It's many waters. It is a booming concert that is going on. And um, you have the harpists playing their harps. And they're singing this worship to the Lord. Um, And now we get a a little bit of a description of them. They lived holy lives. Jesus was an example of one that was set apart like these as well. Hebrews 4.15 talks about the holy life that Jesus lived. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet what without sin without sin. And so these um, are not like that. They're not uh, morally perfect, right? Um, we, they have the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus, but they in their day lived in purity, sexual purity specifically. And um, this is interesting. Um, we see just in our in the last 15, 20 years, how this has become such an issue in the world. And to, to see those that are standing out and set apart. I mean, in our context, we, could, we see the significance of that. But it is always the will of God in every area of our life that we live holy lives. Holy lives. They're living a holy life. And it points you know, to this one area in particular. This is, look, they, they were set apart. And, and I think that there's something that we may want to think about in this is that remember when Paul was writing in Corinthians and he spoke to the church and he says, it's good for you to not be married because there's hard times coming. And he, he kind of called them to re, be virgins, if you will, just, just remain single um, because of the hardship, because of the difficulty that was coming in. And, and I think that we may see a something that kind of fits that. It's a difficult day to think about having a family during the Great Tribulation. And now these are going to be, I think, you know, 144,000 fully um, uh, spirit-filled believers that ha- can have no harm come to them. Watch out world, huh? Think about that. 144,000 people that know that there's limited time. They got got the calendar out. They know the days are, are drawing short. They are filled with the Holy Spirit. And the name of God is on their forehead. And no harm can come to them no matter what takes place. They are bulletproof. And they are bold witnesses that bring in, that are used to bring in a tremendous harvest. So maybe there's a parallel to that passage there in Corinthians where Paul's is saying think it's good if you just you just remain single. Um, those that get married, they have to worry about the things of this world. You have to care for other people. So in the difficulty and the hardships that they were facing, um, he said that to them. And maybe there's a similar kind of thing going on here. But the bottom line is they were set apart. They were holy. 1 Peter 1, 15 through 16. But he who called you but as he who called you is holy you also be holy in all your conduct because it is written be holy for I am holy that's how we're supposed to live our lives as those that are set apart not making and succumbing to the compromises all around because they're so common and because so many people do now you have a different heart you have a different mindset the mindset is don't look at all those that are failing around you and say, yeah, that's what I want to aspire to. No, our our, our goal is to, to be like our Heavenly Father who is holy. I and mean, he's called us all the way up to that level. Imagine that. He's saying, no, no, no. I want you to be holy. I'm holy. And he calls us to that place. Uh, Paul exhorted a young church in Thessalonica. We read it not so many times. Uh, Uh, months ago in 1 Thessalonians 4.4 that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. And this was in regards to sexual purity. So we can live holy lives and we can walk in sanctification and holiness in uh, our lives. But what he says is that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel. So the way I like to put this is, do what it takes for you to walk in spiritual purity and holiness. Because, you know, all of us are to walk in that holiness. All of us are to walk in that purity, right? But what one person may need to do to possess their vessel, their body, may be um, not exactly what you have to do. You may have to cut off more liberties in your life. If a liberty is bringing you under bondage, guess what? It's not a liberty. (laughs) And so... Um, you have to make those adjustments. Well, this was a group of people that were living holy lives in the most difficult days that the world will ever face. They have no advantage over us. They have no advantage. We have the same things that they have access to. A relationship with Jesus, the Spirit of God um, indwelling us, the Word of God to, to lead us and guide us. I think the one thing that they're going to have that maybe we lack right now is that ultimate sense of urgency. Just pressing down. But that comes with a cost too, doesn't it? Although they might be spared, they know a lot of people that aren't going to be spared. And they're going to watch a world just die in front of them. So these are those who lived holy lives. We keep on reading in verse four. These are the ones who follow the lamb wherever he goes. So they're faithful followers. They live holy lives and they are faithful followers. Jesus said in John 8, 29, And he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do the things that please him. Wow. Jesus lived like that. And John gives us the exhortation that as Jesus was in this world, so we should be. And so we should always be seeking to please the Father. Lord, does this bring pleasure to you? It's testified of these 144,000 Jewish Christian believers that they faithfully follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Wherever the Lord sent them, they went. And so, no doubt they're ministering there in the land of Israel, but who knows where all they go and minister. But whatever it is the Lord calls them to, they're ready to do that. And so our chief goal should be to always please the Father, even as Jesus pleased the Father. Our entire life, I surrender all. You know, my life laid down. I surrender all. I mean, that is a great line, and it's it's truly represents what Scripture wants from our lives. But we've got to walk that out. We've got to to decide that that's the way I'm going to live my life. And so I, I would just want you to pause for a moment and think: Can you th- can you? consider or think of an area in your life where God has been calling or is calling upon you and you've been reluctant to go there. I mean, you've been willing to do a lot of things. I'm not saying what Pastor Troy wants for you or what the person in front of you or behind you wants. I'm saying the Lamb of God has said, hey, come hither, come this way with me. Let's walk down this road. Let's let's venture out here. And you've been unwilling to go. I would say, and the, more importantly, the Lord would say, go, follow him. Don't hang back. If the Lord was to speak to you and say, sell everything and follow me over to whatever country in the world. I mean, it's him that says it to you and you know, would you do it? Would you do it and trust him to fill in all those places where you don't know how it's going to work out? Yeah, but what about this? And what? It doesn't matter. If the Lord says go, you go. You, you, you step out in faith. We have a we're not only saved um, right as through through faith. We also walk by faith. You know we, the, our entire walk with the Lord is something that we are to be doing by faith. So these are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. That's a great line for us to ponder. Am I following wherever Jesus goes? Oh, I can't go there because I just don't have, I just can't do that kind of a thing. I just have, I just, I could never, no, I could never just sell everything and go somewhere else because I've worked too hard to get this stuff. I could never do that. Uh, and I don't know of anybody in this room that has said that. So if you said it, don't come apologize because I don't know that you did it. Just just nod and smile and say, yeah, don't ever do that. Because I'm don't, i not pointing at anybody. But I have heard people say, well, I could never go overseas and be a missionary like them. Hang on. Because I love my family too much. What did we just say about the missionary family? <laughs> but they don't love their family? Now, we're probably not meaning to say that. But doesn't it kind of say, I mean, if you were the missionary, so oh, I can never do that because I love my family too much. They're thinking, well, I love my family too. But I love the Lord, and I'm willing to do what the Lord calls me to do. Um, so, yeah, your family is not a reason. As a matter of fact, Jesus had some really hard things to say about following your family more than following him. Does anybody remember what it sounds like? What did he say? If you are, un- if you love your mother, your father more than me, you are not what? You're not worthy. You're not worthy. I don't think you'll find a... a, a, a A bolder statement in scripture from Jesus to his disciples than that. I'm not playing around. I want you to follow me. We're disciples of Jesus Christ. I'm still there in verse four. At the end of verse four, we see that they are the first fruits. These were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits to God and to the Lamb. The first fruits? Wait a minute. How are they the first fruits? You know, what about the day of Pentecost? Wasn't that the first fruits? Oh, the first fruits of what? The church. So what are we talking about here of these 70? It would seem from this statement, these are the first ones to get saved during the 70th week, during the Great Tribulation. Um, So, Because there are many believers that have gone before these believers. So they have to be a firstfruits in some category other than simply the church age. They are the firstfruits of those who have come out of the tribulation, that, that are in the tribulation. We move on, verse 5, and it says, And in their mouth was found no deceit, for they are without fault before the throne of God. They had pure speech. They had pure speech. The words of the 144,000 were Trustworthy. Jesus only spoke trustworthy words, right? He never was one that was found saying something other than what the Father had told them to do. He didn't lie. He didn't deceive. 1 Peter 2.22 tells us this. But there's an exhortation that is to all believers to make certain that that we are speaking without deceit, that we're speaking truthfully. In Proverbs 8.8 it says, All the words of my mouth are with righteousness, nothing crooked or perverse is in them. Proverbs 8.8. 8. All the words of my mouth are with righteousness, nothing crooked or perverse is in them. That's these guys. What they have to say is true and it's right, which is it's really something because they're living in an age of deception unlike anything the world has ever seen. So when they speak... And listen, these are the, they're going to be speaking the truth of God's word. They're going to be going through. And when they say something, the world is going to watch it in very short order to come pass, come to pass. Wow, you said this is going to happen, and this came to pass. And I think they're, just going to be, they're going to stand out as those. But this is the commentary of God about them, um, is that they are true. We need to be so careful with the way we use our mouth. Because it is with this mouth that we praise God. It is with this mouth that we proclaim everlasting life. And if we use this same mouth to lie, to, um, you know, get involved in uh, un- unseemly speech, gossip, slander, you know what? It has an impact. If we begin to tell the white lies or we tell the, the lies of convenience you know, well, hey, the people that are hearing us talk about Jesus and they're hearing the gospel come from this mouth, they're also hearing something else. And we need to have a consistency. We have a need to have a holiness of speech. And these are those that are, are without fault before the throne of God. So the end of verse 5, um, the beginning of verse 5, they have pure speech. The end of verse 5, we see that they are faultless before God. And, of course, we know that. They're able to do that because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. The same way they're able to stand before God sinless and without fault is the same way that we are able to stand sinless and without fault. And by the way, the same way in which the Old Testament saints are able to stand before the throne of God sinless and without fault. This is what we read over and over in Scripture. Colossians, I'll just give you a few samples. Colossians 1.22 says that... Um, To present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. This is the work of Jesus, what he did. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit, soul, body, soul and body be preserved blameless at his coming. Or Jude, verse 24. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless. Before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Not only are you gonna stand before the presence of the Lord faultless in his glory, but you're gonna be there with joy. You're gonna be able to enjoy the moment. You're not gonna be just, I don't belong here, I don't belong here, I don't know. There, you're gonna be so full of an awareness of what Christ has done, and you're gonna be overwhelmed with the joy as you look um, at the finished work of Jesus Christ in yourself. And you're going to know that you belong there because of the work of the Lord. You're going to be completely sanctified. You're going to be above reproach in his sight. What's that? Nobody could come up and say, hey, Jesus, I know that you're real excited that she's here and everything, but you know what she did when we were on planet Earth? She actually said this about you. Let me tell you. No. Nobody can bring accusation against you. That is all under the blood of Jesus Christ. And so he died for our sins and they are removed from us. They're not stored up in some you know, um, nasty vault in heaven that can be opened up and everybody can now begin to kind of, you know, stuff gets leaked. We're in election time, right? Everything gets, everything, the nasty vaults get oh, you know, unlocked and all kinds of, you know, bad press comes out. No bad press in heaven. That's not to say you don't have bad press right now. It's not to say there's nothing there. It's just that it's been removed. You've been scrubbed, and nobody can bring a charge against you. And we'll be standing faultless before the throne of God. But this is going to be their experience, and they are the ones that are in focus here. How glorious and wonderful this day will be when we are before the presence of the Lord. Wow, such joy. Let's look at verses 6 and 7. It says, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth. Did you know that? Have you ever read that? Did you, were you aware of that? Another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea, and springs of water. A message of salvation is going to be preached by, by these angels. Um, in Matthew 24, verse 14, Jesus said that the gospel will need to be preached into the whole world, and then the end will come. And so a lot of people will look and say, well, listen, I mean, Jesus can't come back now because there's still people who don't know. And there are still people who don't know. But um, there will be at least seven years of the missionary activities of the 144,000. But there's also going to be this angel that is flying through the heavens and is proclaiming the everlasting gospel. So, you know, when it says to every nation, tribe, tongue, and peoples, I think about all these little, you know, pockets of people that have yet to be reached. They still don't have a New Testament you know, the angels are going to be declaring to them about Creator God and how they need to worship Him. Well, I mean, this is going to be an, a unique period of time. Down through the ages, since the beginning of the church, it has been our responsibility to proclaim the gospel. And we are on, you know, it's our lap right now for this generation, each and every one of us. As the baton of the gospel, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, it is in your hand and it is in my hand. And we have the responsibility to proclaim to every tribe, tongue, and nation. We need to, I mean, this should not give us a sense of, oh, okay, good. No, that person that you knew I have an opportunity to share with tomorrow may never ever see, I mean, when is this going to happen? We have no idea when this is, you know, tribulation is going to start. It could be a hundred years from now. So, you know, we should have that sense of urgency and responsibility to run our lap really, really well with the gospel and the proclaiming of it. But there will come a time when the angels who desire to look into these things, remember Peter talked about that? They're going to actually have, at least one is going to have a shot at it. And they're going to go around proclaiming the everlasting gospel. And I'm certain for for some this will result in salvation. But you know, for those who have hardened their hearts, it won't make a difference if if it's an angel. You want to know how I know that? Because God himself came down to planet Earth and sat down and had meals with people in their homes and they still rejected him. It's amazing how hard the, the heart of men and women can be. And so some will respond. Some will not. Angels were present and announced the birth of Jesus. It's been our responsibility. But at the end of the age, an angel is going to get another shot. And going to go around and he's going to be proclaiming this message. And, and what we read here is um, that they, they go preaching, verse 7, saying, Fear God and give glory to him. Fear God. Um, the gospel and the message of this angel gives us the priorities that we should have. We should walk in the fear of God. Solomon told us that fearing God was the beginning of of wisdom. The idea of fearing God is that we should have a holy awe and reverence, uh, a humbling before the greatness of an all-powerful, all-knowing God. That we would tremble before him, that we would fear him, not in run away, but there would be this, you are God and, and I am not. And then he says that we should fear him and give glory to him. So the fear isn't the one that sends us running, it sends us bringing it, bringing our, ourselves closer to him, that we might worship him, that we might glorify him, that we live our lives in such a way that the Lord would be magnified, not just through the songs we sing, but the way in which we, we work the way in which we do family, the way in which we we're roommates, the way in which we are just people in this generation, citizens, you know that there would be a glorifying of God through the way we live our life. And Jesus talked about this, that people could see our good works, that they might glorify our Father in heaven. So we're bringing glory to him through, yes, through songs and, and through acknowledging him as the Lord of our life, but also in the way in which we live our life. The world says, honor self and please self. But the gospel says, honor God and please God. And this message that they bring is the everlasting gospel. It's the gospel that gives man life. And it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's for all people, not just some people, every tribe, tongue, and nation. Ah, don't you think you ought to just keep your Christianity to yourself and not mess with these poor people over here that are, you know, you know Hindu or they're, um, they're Muslims or, you know, they're Buddhists? I mean, don't go and try and change what they think because, you know, that's for you. No, the gospel is for every tribe, tongue, people, nation, everybody. The Jesus is a creator. God is a creator. Jesus is a savior for all of mankind, not just some of mankind. And it's interesting, you know, to me that as they go about proclaiming this message, um, the one thing that they say is that they should worship the one who made heaven and earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Well, listen, the heaven, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water—they're going to have a special attack of judgment upon them. So there's going to be a heightened awareness about things that, as it relates to water and and the earth. Because the volcanoes are erupting. There are earthquakes that are taking place. Streams are being spoiled. And these angels are saying, yeah, God made all those things that you now suddenly are so dependent on. He's the creator of all of these things. You know, this is a truth that is widely rejected in our day. Evolution has dismissed God and said we don't, believe there's a God. We believe that, you know, all of what we see in this world is the product of random chance over, uh, you know, billions and billions of years. And, and, and here is the earth. Well, what does that do? Well, that takes a person um, away from having a sense of responsibility and worship of God. So if I can explain this world without God, then, hey, then I can find it quite easy to believe that there is no God. But this, listen, it takes more faith to believe, be an evolutionist than it does to believe there's a creator. If I told you that Lowe's exploded and I've got a mansion in my backyard, are you going to believe me? <laughs> You're not going to believe me. And yet, that is kids' play compared to this universe and the way in which God has put um, his creation together, the detail. We can't even figure out all the detail yet. We know how to to build homes, mansions on our own. So really, Lowe's exploding and a mansion landing in your backyard or my backyard is more likely than evolution. If you see a watch, you know there's a watchmaker. And yet we look at the creation that's around us, and we say, yeah, accident, random chance. There's not enough, even even with all of the, the time that they have given for random chance to take place, they have to keep changing it because there's never enough time. Because, you know, the, the more they know about the even you know the our our makeup, our DNA, it's too complicated. It's too complicated. The information is amazing. Say, so, well, this little bit of information came together with this little bit of information, and they, they 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 joined together, and eventually that becomes this, you know, cell, this single cell. Okay. Where did the information come from? Even if you believe that this, the whole evolutionary process is, you, you, that's where you are. Here's the question. Where does the information come from? And we're not talking about like, you know, stick figures on a cave wall. We're talking about information that would, would take up volumes and volumes of, of books. Where does that information come from? We, we never see information and think accident. I've used this illustration before, I'm not the first one to use it, but if you're walking on the beach, miles and miles of beach, millions and trillions of grains of sand, and you see something shaped like this in the shape of a heart on the sand with two letters and a plus sign in the middle, do you think, wow, that is a crazy wave that did that, you know? Those sand crabs are doing some interesting stuff now. I mean, that, what are the chances that these sand crabs would draw a heart, two initials and a plus sign, and that's how you know, we talk about love? I mean, no, we know, something that simple. We know that there was an informer. Somebody did that. Going back to the sticks figures on a cave, if an archaeologist finds stick figures in a cave wall, and they're thousands of years old, oh, they're excited. Because that's information. And if there's information, then that means that there were informants. And now they can find out, maybe in that cave, if they keep looking, maybe they'll find out a few more things. Oh, they found you know a, a tool. Now they know something more about them. And, 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 and yet it's just, just, it's just a stick figure. Where all of us who can't draw, draw. That's what we do. And they get so excited about that. This is not a Monet, it's just a it's like a stick figure. But that information, that's information, right? Well, if that simplistic information is that meaningful to us, then where did the information come from in the explosion to come together? Where where did that you you got to have somebody put that information out there to begin with. So, listen, I don't mean to do a whole a study here on creation versus evolution, but it's just at the end of the day, he's flying through the earth saying, hey, there's a creator. You ought to worship him. He's the one who's made these streams. He's the one who's made all that you know. And so they go about announcing these things. Let's go to verse 8. It says, and another angel followed saying, Babylon is fallen, is fallen, the great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. We're going to get more information about Babylon in the chapters to come, but um, there's a the big question we have is this literal Babylon or is this some uh, symbolic Babylon? Now, uh, you know, there's Peter used Babylon as a code word for Rome. So there is place in Scripture where the word Babylon is used, and it's not always referring back to the ancient city of of. Um, Babylon. But there, there are two cities that are mentioned more than any other cities in Scripture. Jerusalem and Babylon. Jerusalem is used more as, as number one. Babylon is number two. It would not surprise me at all if ancient Babylon is back in the center of um, uh, the last seven years on planet Earth. It becomes the hub of business and, and all everything else. And even even religion. It says, made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, spiritual fornication, idolatry. Babylon is thought to be the birthplace of all false religion, the Tower of Babel. And so when it talks about drinking of this wine, it's, it's drinking of this idolatry. And we know what the last world religion will be. It's the worship of the Antichrist. And so we you know as we keep on reading there, verse 9, we see this. It says, Then a third, of, uh, then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Uh, and verse 11, And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, who worship the beast and his image, and whoever receives the mark of his name. We'll stop right there. So, many false religions, but there's only one religion, true religion, that leads to the Lord. But the false religion that's going to be in place at the end of days is the worship of the Antichrist. The Antichrist will stand in the temple of God saying, I am God, worship me. The false prophet will come along and say, he really is, worship him. And he is going to be uh, the, the religious guy. The Antichrist is going to be the political guy. Um, and this is the, the last uh, religion. And this is what's being referred to. But but you do notice that you know what happens is uh, those who worship him and take the mark of the beast, it, it is worship. When somebody takes the mark of the beast, they are worshiping him as God. It's, it's, as I said a few weeks ago, it's not like, you know, you got a new enhanced ATM card and now all of a sudden you realize, oh, I took the mark of the beast and I just thought it was more convenient, you know. It's not going to work like that. People who take the mark of the beast will be eyes wide open, He's God. And I want to worship him. And I want to mark myself in such a way that shows my allegiance to him. Well, what will happen to those who take the mark of the beast is the same thing that's going to happen to him. God is going to pour out his wrath. Um, you know, they drink of the wine of his fornication, but the Lord is going to pour out the cup of his indignation. Um, it says there in verse 10. And the result is that they'll be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of his holy angels. There's going to be an eternal judgment that is coming. The Bible teaches eternal torment and death, not only for those who follow the Antichrist, but for all those who reject the message of the gospel. 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 8 and 10. In flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed so there this is why Jesus came and died on the cross because the judgment that mankind would endure outside of this salvation is so severe it's so terrible There's this eternal judgment. And Jesus often made mention of this eternal judgment that is real. Matthew 25, verses 44 through 46. Turn with me over there if you would. We're almost done here. Matthew 25, verses 44 through 46. There are some, many who are unbelievers, who say, well, heaven's not real and hell's not real. Um, some believers would say that, you know, there's there's a real hell, but in the end it results in annihilation and that these people don't, people, mankind does not go on for eternity uh, being in this kind of punishment and this kind of judgment. And the reason for saying that is not because of some clear statement in Scripture, it's because it's a really hard thing to think about that happening forever. I mean, I, I you know I would imagine most of us in here believe that that it's an eternal judgment. Listen, it's hard. That's a hard thing to conceive of forever. Um, and in this passage I think really speaks to this in, clearly, in verse forty four, it says. Then they also will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it, um, did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Now, here it is. Verse 46. And these things and these will go into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So let's back into this for a second. How long is eternal life for the righteous? We're hoping that it's forever, right? We're kind of thinking it's forever, forever. Like, in, in not just in duration, but also in quality. So he says the, the righteous are going to go into eternal life. But, he, but before that, he says that these, those who are living unrighteously, that they're going to go into everlasting punishment. And some will say, well, see, it's different words. One is everlasting punishment. The other one is eternal life. That's only in our, that is only in our English translations. And I, your, your translation maybe has the same exact word. I didn't look up the other English translations. I'm reading from the New King James. People look and say, look, it's everlasting punishment versus eternal life. In the Greek, it's the same exact word. In the same form, same ending, same exact word. And so we have a comparison. If, the, if, if it's eternal life, everlasting life without end, and then how can we, where in this text do we find a place to say, but the one that pre- proceeds that is also called um, eternal punishment, that's not forever. That, how, how do we know that? There's nothing in the text that would give us any indication Nor is there anywhere in Scripture. At best, they will pick up on things that are not said about duration rather than something that is said about the limitation of time. And that's generally how the arguments go. And you can read books and they'll say, well, you know, the word here, Ionis, eternal, everlasting, it is something that um, it can mean um, for um, a duration. You're right, it can. But context always determines what a word means, right? You can use a wrong word in the in you know in a certain context and we'll correct it. We do that for each other all the time, don't we? Context, you could use a wrong word, it's no wrong words here. Okay, I'm not saying that. But you could use a wrong word in just casual conversation, and somebody will will just say, oh, they, they didn't mean that, they meant this. Because the context determines, right? context determines what in the context tells us to think of our eternal life as being any as some you know duration that comes to an end nothing. there's nowhere where you find that and Jesus put these two side by side. Is this hard? Oh it is a if you will this is a this is a terrible doctrine this is a terrible truth of scripture that mankind is going to punish and it's for that terrible truth that I believe it moved heaven to send the son of God to die on the cross to take that punishment so what would it take to move heaven to send the son of God to die and some will say well you know I just I just don't think that's the case I don't think God could you know judge for eternity well how long do you think God could judge for then because when we read about the rich man and Lazarus, he's still in a place of torment, according to that story. Well, you know, but at the end, it'll be, everybody will be annihilated. So then 2,000 years? I mean, I just—I have a hard time just logically. This, I'm trying to make a, a big doctrinal statement here. But logically, so you can envision 2,000 years, or if we go back to the beginning of, of creation, I mean, you can envision 6,000 years of terrible torment. And you know, according to logic, that doesn't impugn the character of God. But if we go to eternal Judgment that now impugns the character of God? That that doesn't make sense to me. God is righteous in everything that he does. Everything that he does. And so, yeah, it's hard to imagine, especially when you start thinking about loved ones. But let God be true and every man a liar. So, um, eternal judgment is real, which should serve as a such a motivation for us to run our lap of gospel preaching faithfully. We wrap it up here in verses 12 and 13. We read about our blessed faith. Here's the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God in the faith of Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works Follow them. Huh. You know, this period of the tribulation is going to be so bad that as we open into um, the bold judgments. Are, it's going to be so bad that heaven itself says, wow, a blessing for those that die, and you don't have to go through the rest of about what's to come. You're going to have your place. You'll rest from your labors. You'll be in the presence of the Lord. You'll be rewarded for what you do. But how bad must it be? for that kind of a statement to be made. But all of us, in application of this, all of us in, in, in faith will one day rest from our labors, right? One day all of us will be in the presence of the Lord. And when a believer dies, it's sad. When our, when our family, when our friends, when a brother or sister in the Lord passes away, it's a sad thing. But we don't grieve as those who have no hope. They have rested from their labors and their works have followed them to heaven. And they're in the presence of the Lord. And you, we, we can mourn for our own um, loss of fellowship with them. Um, but we know we are going to be reunited with them. So it takes so much of that sting away. But it's, st- it's still there, something we feel. But, you know, I just would encourage you to understand the great hope that, that we have in Christ Jesus. And, you know, um, if the Lord does not return and you one day get a bad doctor's report and says, okay, looks like this is it, you know, you don't have to worry. You will rest from your labors. You will rest from your labors, and your works will follow you. And you don't have to be panicked. You don't have to be, you know, distressed. Oh, of course. I mean, listen, all of us will have a degree of concern about dying and the method and the process and what's it going to be like. I mean, it's an unknown to us. But we can step back from that and just say, but I'm in your hands, Lord. And I will be in your, in your presence. And he's going to be there to meet you. He's going to be there to greet you, as he has every saint. To be absent from the body is to be what? That's right. To be present with him. But in this day, there's a special blessing because the days are going to be so terrible, so nasty, so violent. It's like, wow. Wow. Blessing that you got to get out of this. Not all will. The 144,000 will make it to the end, and many others will make it to the end. But um, they're going to have some stories to tell about this time, the second half of the tribulation. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we've been given the hope of eternal life. We've given the hope that you're going to complete that work that's begun in us. But Lord you have some things that you've called us to and that is to follow you wherever you go. And we want to be like these 144,000 that are yet to come that follow you wherever you want. We want to follow you wherever you lead us. Lord soften our hearts. Soften our hearts even at this moment that we would be yielded to you in all things, in our dreams, in our goals, in our our finances and with our families, that we would be willing to follow you wherever you go, that we would look to live holy, set-apart lives, unspotted from this world,